there is a creature alive today who has survived millions of years of evolution without change, without passion, and without logic. It lives to kill. A mindless eating machine. It will attack and devour anything. It is as if God created the devil and gave him Jaws. Okay, by this stage, anyone who knows anything about the making of Jaws knows that the shark, a pneumatic-powered prop, wouldn't work, which caused the production schedule to balloon from 55 to 159 days, which in turn caused the budget to more than double, from 4 to 9 million, which in turn led the fledging director to fear for his job and his career. And anyone who knows anything about the film's success will know its release invented the summer blockbuster. It grossed in so much money, so fast, that it forever altered the way movies were distributed, marketed, and even regarded. Right. A summer girl goes swimming. Swims out a little far. She tires. Fishing boat comes along. It's happened before. I don't think you appreciate the gut reaction people have to these things. Harry, I appreciate it. I'm just reacting to what I was told. Right. It's all psychological. You yell Barracuda. Everybody says, huh? What? You yell Shark. We've got a panic on our hands on the 4th of July. But if all you do is recount a production's near disasters, the conversation sinks to the depths of anecdotes. The lesson to be learned from the making of Jaws is how Steven Spielberg was able to take the setbacks and frustrations and reorganize the film in his head so the tests became triumphs. Rather than succumbing to creative inertia and being frozen by the fear that what wasn't working would never work, Spielberg had the strength of personality to withstand the crushing pressure from a Hollywood studio heavily invested in a production they expected to run according to plan. That's the sort of thing that is never taught in film school. That's the sort of thing critics can never truly fathom when reviewing a film. That's the sort of thing that you either have character for or you don't. To quote Ernest Hemingway, a man who loved to fish, it is grace under pressure. But even that isn't always enough. You have to know the art and language of cinema. So great is Spielberg's understanding of cinema that upon seeing the film, no less than the master of suspense Alfred Hitchcock said, young Spielberg is the first of us who doesn't see the proscenium arch. Tell him about the swimmers. A shark is attracted to the exact kind of splashing and activity that occurs whenever human beings go in swimming. You cannot avoid it. If you open the beaches on the 4th of July, it's like ringing the dinner bell, for Christ's sake. Look, sakes. Mr. Vaughan, Mr. Vaughan, I pulled a tooth the size of a shot glass out of the rectal of a boat out there, and it was the tooth of a great white. It was Ben Gardner's boat. It was all chewed up. I helped tow it in. You, sh you should have seen him. Where, where is that tooth? Did you see it, bro? No, I didn't see it. He, he dropped it. Yeah, I had an accident. Way in. And what did you say the name of this shark is? It's a Carcharodon carcarius. It's a great white. In other words, while Spielberg was thinking in terms of how the audience would see his film in theatres, his presentation of the film was not in the tradition of theatre. In theatre, you have staging. In cinema, you have framing. In theatre and cinema, you have blocking. But while a theatre audience views the drama from one position and one position only, their seat, 
a cinema audience views the drama from whichever angle the director shows them, which means editing. And that means visual wit. And what is visual wit? It is the acute understanding that a particular picture will quickly communicate a particular idea. And what is communicated must be more than what is visualized. For example, early in the film, we see a woman swimming in the ocean. Now, when I said that, you likely imagined the woman's face silhouetted against the sunset. But what if the camera were placed below the woman, looking up at her, silhouetted against the water's surface? That shot communicates more than what we are shown because it suggests a point of view. The shark's point of view. That is visual wit. Here's another example. Chief Brody, played by Roy Scheider, wants to shut the beaches, but given that it is the 4th of July, the town's mayor, played by Murray Hamilton, pressurises him into keeping them open. Then everyone's worst fears are realised when the shark comes into the shallow waters and attacks. Part of the sequence has Brody's eldest son out in the spinnaker. The shark attacks, the spinnaker capsizes, and the young boy is left alone and exposed in the water. By miracle, the shark swims past him and the boy survives. As Brody comforts his son, he looks out at the ocean. We are now in Brody's point of view. And that single shot communicates more than what we are shown because it reveals Brody's intent to now go after the beast. Japanese submarine slammed two torpedoes into our side chief. He was coming back from the island of Tinian Delady and just delivered the bomb. The Hiroshima bomb. 1,100 men went into the water. The vessel went down in 12 minutes. Didn't see the first shark for about half an hour. Tiger, 13-footer, you know? You know that when you're in the water, Chief? You tell by looking from the dorsal to the tail. But what of editing? Editing takes a particular picture that communicates a particular idea and by putting it against other particular pictures, it sustains the communication and pluralizes the idea. The single shot is a single idea. The shots are many ideas. The ideas move. In other words, when Hitchcock was praising Spielberg, he was saying the ideas moved and multiplied. But Spielberg was also thinking in terms of sound and above all, music. Here's an exercise. Watch any action sequence by Spielberg with the sound turned down, and despite the silence, you will see and feel a strong tempo from the events. Firstly, from what is happening in front of the camera. Secondly, from the way the camera moves in relation to the action. And thirdly, from the way it is all edited together. Those synchronized rhythms that Spielberg has created provide the foundation for the music. Here is his longtime collaborator, John Williams. I think he's tremendously musical, if you don't mind my saying it, Stephen. Musical in the sense of rhythm. And I look at the film trying to find out just exactly how fast is it or how slow is it, because the film is telling me what the tempo is. And with Stephen's film, I find it all very rhythmical. And easy, in, in a funny way of saying it, easier to score, easier for me to make music for, because the films themselves have a, a singing musical quality. But it's not just the notes and the rhythm that makes the music effective. It is where to place the music, or to simply let the picture play by itself. 
At the start of the film, Williams' music announces the arrival of the shark before we even see it. And it does this so effectively that when we next hear the motif, we know what it means. After that, Williams' music plays with us so much that Spielberg manages to pull a complete switch when, out on the ocean hunting for the shark, Chief Brody is tossing fish bait overboard. Slow ahead. I can go slow ahead. Come on down and chump some of this shit. That shock was so effective, it caused a bit of a headache for the film's editor, Verna Fields. After having seen the shark and its enormous size up close, Brody then backs up into the ship's cabin, where he tells Quint, You're going to need a bigger boat. But when they test preview the film, the audience was still screaming with so much shock that the line was lost. Fields, who rightly won an Oscar for her work on the film, went back into the sequence and found just the right tempo for the line to work. When Spielberg was initially approached to direct the film, the executives at Universal expected the production to be shot on the studio backlot. But Spielberg said no, he wanted to shoot it out on the ocean. That one decision caused all manner of complications, and retrospectively, Spielberg says it was hubris. But it wasn't youthful arrogance. It was age-old chutzpah, and it is precisely what makes the film work. Had Spielberg settled for the studio backlot, Jaws would have been just another run-in-the-mill picture that we would not still be talking about some 40 years later. I mean, some people might watch the likes of The Towering Inferno, Earthquake, Rollerball, The Hindenburg, or Death Race 2000. But they don't gather in big groups, and they certainly don't gather to study those films. Why? Because none of them advance their respective genres. None of them possess the fluency, invention, and sheer joy of filmmaking that Jaws has. And to harken back to Hitchcock, none of them escaped the proscenium arch. That's really what marks Jaws out as a classic and what makes Spielberg one of the greatest artists in the history of the medium 